Yeah. There is one question, and I'm sure that those of you who do Bible study here know this already, but there is one question that needs to be asked whenever we look at a passage of Scripture, and that question is, basically, why is it here? Why, of all the stories the ancient world had to tell, did people decide to remember this one, to repeat it, to tell it around campfires and in little buildings, and eventually to write it down and make it a part of the permanent archive? Now, there are many reasons why stories have been kept. Sometimes they simply move the plot along. I mean, if, Her if Pharaoh hadn't let the Israelites go, the Bible would be much shorter. That would have sort of ended it right there. We need that story to show us what happened to them as they went out into the wilderness and onto the promised land. The story of the resurrection, stories that have great theological meaning and are turning points in faith, that needed to be included. Paul's writings, although not always the most exciting things to read, but do give us an insight into what the early church was actually preaching to the world around it, what made it effective, what gave it a influence that was able to push aside many of the beliefs of that time. And sometimes stories are remembered simply because they're good stories. I talked last week about David and Goliath. Well, how can you beat it? You know, the young, inexperienced shepherd boy against the big, strong warrior and what's going to happen. And if you want to see how effective that story is, try teaching it in Sunday school. Because all the kids go, oh yeah, and then he gets his head cut off. Yeah, that's the best part. That's why we read the Bible. So we have to look at this morning's story and say, all right, here's the story. It's there. Why is it there? And at first, and I found this this week, I had to say, yeah, why is it there? I mean, really, on the surface, this is a part of a bigger story about Elijah fleeing from Jezebel and Ahab. He'd killed or had overseen the killing of the false prophets in the north. Now here he is running down uh, through the countryside till he gets down to the very south of the countryside, which is Beersheba. And maybe you have a map here. There it is. You see, he'd come from way up north at Mount Carmel. That's where the slaughter took place. And now he's gone right through the country down to Beersheba. Now, Beersheba is the end of civilization. When you hit it, it's called the uh, capital of the Negev because ba basically south of it is desert. That's it. You're there. He, he'd run as far as he could go. And this story seems to just be a part of what was a long run. And yeah... He left his servant in Beersheba. He moved on, went out in the wilderness, and got tired and lay down. Uh, that's certainly a, an interesting story. And I can't imagine anyone having heard this story who would say, wow, we heard about Elijah having a sleep and two snacks during the night, and that has really inspired me. I, boy, my life is, is completely different. And you notice, by the way, it says it took him 40 days to get to Horeb. We don't have any other stories, you know. And on the second day, or on the third day, or on the 23rd day, you know, he stopped at Motel 6 and had pierogies for dinner. I mean, they, they don't mention things like this. So why this particular instance? What, what's special about it? Now, I must admit, when I read it over, I, and I've had this feeling before when I've seen this part of Scripture, I always find it rather annoying. I mean, God starts out quite good here. I mean, the man is tired. 
he lies down, and then God gives him a snack. All right, that's what we said last week. God provides for us what we need when we need it. God gives us the strength to go on. Okay, good story, quit it there. But then God comes back in the middle of the night, and it's sort of a Jewish mother's story. You know, Elijah, get up, eat more food. You'll end up sick like your brother Abraham. Come on, let's eat him up. You know, let's, let's do more. And why, why the waking up? I mean, what does that accomplish? It reminded me of, of Foothills Hospital. When I was there, I had a, a valve replacement a couple of years ago so they could fix my knee someday. <laughs> Waste of an operation. Anyway, I'd never been in a hospital overnight before and didn't realize what a horrible place it is to be, especially because they keep waking you up, just like God in the story. You know, you're, you're asleep. And the first night, I know, it was a little short guy, and it was pitch black. I hadn't, didn't have my glasses on. And he said, who are you? And, uh, well, I know who I am, and I've got a name, man, and I've got a bed. The big question is, who are you? I mean, you know, so I'm going to take blood. Aha, uh -huh, you know, the Foothills vampire. You know, I don't know who you are. I mean, or, of course, the worst that's been made fun of on many occasions are those nurses who wake you up at 3 in the morning when you've just fallen asleep to give you a sleeping pill so you can go to sleep. And you're like, like didn't they teach you in school what a sleeping person looks like? I mean, you don't give... That kind of person, a sleeping pill. Anyway, God here, I mean, God is persistent, and that might be good, but he'd already fed Elijah. So what, what's that part about? So let's go through and see if there is any deeper meaning here. But Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. Now, as we said, he's gone south. He's got to a point where he's been running away from uh, Jezebel and her husband, King Ahab. Now, this should have been, this should have been the highlight of his life. He'd destroyed the false prophets way up there in Mount Carmel. So they're gone. He should have won uh, the Prophet of the Year Award or the Nobel Peace Prize or the uh, Best Supporting Actor in a Divine Drama or something. But what the Bible didn't mention, and the unfortunate truth, was that many of the people in the country at the time, despite the fact that we seem to think, oh, and they all believed in God, Many of the people followed the false prophets, sort of like Fox News. Anyway, and so, um, and, and so they were angry with him, and leading them were Jezebel and Ahab. And I always put Jezebel first, but she seems to have been the driving force in that relationship. So he's, he's tried to escape them. He's now got down to Beersheba. He has basically two choices. He can turn and go through Gaza to Egypt which is a long and arduous journey, or he can go the other way and maybe get down around the Arabian Peninsula and find some life and civilization there, but basically he's out of options. He's feeling miserable. Instead of being a hero, instead of being the person who's been celebrated, he's a fugitive. He's alone, he's hungry, and to put it in the simplest of terms, he's run out of road. That's, that's what's happened to him. There's, there's no place left to go. They seem to be still going after him, and he's depressed. This is really a story about depression. He, he doesn't see any way of escaping. Uh, nobody's helping him. Nobody has helped him. And now he's here, and he has no resources whatsoever. What should I do? And this story is really a story of dealing with that situation because, and I don't want to spoil the end of it for you, but you'll notice at the end, he's off on a journey, a mission. He has a purpose. So the first thing we read is then he lay down under the broom tree 
and fell asleep. Now, a broom tree is probably one of the only larger bushes in the wilderness there. It's three to four meters high, depending on where it's been growing, how much water it has, and how much soil is around it that has some nutrient in it. But it's, it's one of the few samples of shade. So what he did, it was you know the end of the day, the end, final rays of the sun were coming down, sort of like Friday here, got into the broom tree and lay down and went to sleep. Now that's a minor detail, and most of us just skipped over it. Well, yes, it's the end of the day. Of course he'd go to sleep, but else would he do? But the thing is that in doing so, he was preparing for whatever came ahead. And ironically, in our society right now, not having enough sleep is still a problem. We don't love ourselves. We don't look after ourselves. We are pushed. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. I've just a few more things and I'll be through. And it's shown in a study that was taken between 2007 to 2013. One third of all ages, uh, 43% of men and 55% of women between 18 and 64, reported that they are sleep deprived. That's how we are. We don't go to sleep. I just heard very briefly as I was leaving the house uh, somebody saying how the light bulb had been the greatest invention of the human mind because the light bulb gives us endless days. We can stay up forever, and we try to. You see, unfortunately, our minds still know that we need sleep, but we tend to push them aside. My father watched the 11 o'clock news every night. Every night, I mean, he had to go downstairs and he had to turn on the TV because he had to watch. I don't think my father ever saw a news story in 30 years. He just went to sleep, but, it, but he had to do it. And this is how we are. You know, I, I, I can push it. I've got the electric light bulb. I've, I've got my iPad. I can read in bed when other people are sleeping. Isn't it wonderful? And we have learned that driving forever is probably what's going to give us success, and it doesn't. Elijah learned that. Lay down and went to sleep. Animals know that, by the way. I took our dog out on Friday afternoon to, for his usual walk. And he's a racing dog. He's a greyhound. And uh, he immediately found the biggest tree in the park and lay down on the grass. That was it. This is a broom tree. I'm here. And you can go off and walk and run if you want to. But I think that would be just plain darn stupid. And by the way, this isn't just about nighttime sleep. This isn't just about getting a good night's rest. At the University of California in San Francisco, scientists have found that when rats have new experiences, like exploring an unfamiliar area, their brains show new patterns of activity. You know, all the light bulbs go on. You can see the brain is, is learning something. It's doing something. But only when the rats take a break from their exploration? Do they process those patterns in a way that seem to create a persistent memory of the experience? During the day, we're sleep deprived in the night, but during the day, when do we take breaks? Well, we now take breaks, and what do we do? I can play Candy Crush right now, you know? I'll, I'll Facebook, I'll send messages, I'll do We don't sit and look out the window and allow our brains to process all the things we've done. And thus it just becomes a blur, most of which is forgotten. Almost certainly, downtime lets the brain go over experiences it had. 
solidify them, and turn them into permanent long-term memories, said Lauren Frank, assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at the university, where he specializes in learning and memory. He said he believes that when the brain is constantly stimulated, you prevent the learning process. Ooh, our drive. I've got to get this done. I've got to do it now. I, I, I can do three things at once. You know, I'm filing and I'm thinking and I'm writing a story all at the same time because this is who I am. I'm wonderful. And the brain is just confused. If you want to start a new life, if you want to really feel, oh, yeah, I'm a new person with a new sense of strength, love yourself. Give yourself a night's sleep. And during the day, once or twice, three times, ah, oh, let's do it four times, sit in a chair without your phone or your iPad or a book or TV and just look out the window. The basic setting of the human brain is daydreaming. That's the default setting that we're born with. Just daydream. Look out the window. There are birds out the window. I hadn't seen birds out the window before. You know, uh, that's wonderful. So this is where Elijah begins. And the fact that he lay down and went to sleep is not just an added detail, as most people lay down and go to sleep at night. No. He lay down and went to sleep. He was beginning something new. The Quakers, perhaps, put it best. They have a phrase, very short, one of their basic beliefs, and it's simply, lay it down. That's it. Lay it down. Give yourself permission to lay it down. Every once in a while, when you're all uptight, you know, Ahab and Jezebel are chasing me. I've got things to do. I've got a busy schedule. I've got... Lay it down. Just say, okay, the world will actually continue to go, to run, to function without me. Because often we act as if that isn't the truth. Often we feel that if we stop for a moment, the entire universe will just disintegrate into nothingness. Lay it down. And it's amazing when we do, how people manage to go on even without us. It's sort of surprising, you know. Things continue to work properly. In fact, that's the main test of faith. Do we trust God enough that God will keep the universe going without me? Learn to do that. And you'll find that, you know, God does very well. He really, really does. doesn't need us. All right, then the story continues. And this is where we get that weird twist that I've always had trouble with. Then the angel of God came a second time. He's done what he should do. He's going to sleep. He's relaxing. He's laid it down. Touched him and said, get up and eat. Otherwise, the journey will be too much for you. Now, the word we don't notice there, and we should, is that he says the journey. Now, up to this point, Elijah has not been on a journey. He's been on a run. He's been running away. You didn't hear that he had an itinerary. You know, well, day one, I think I'll make it maybe as far as Jerusalem, and day two, no, he was just running, blind, running away. And now he's hit the end of the road, and he's standing there, and now suddenly... With reflection, with quiet, and with peace, he has a journey. He ironically has found his purpose. Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights, to Horeb, the mount of God. He had the final thing we need. We need good sleep. We need a good disposition, a good mind, and he needed a purpose. He was off 
to meet God. And by the way, that's hinted at right at the beginning of the story when he said, you know, I'm just like my ancestors. Remember the ancestors? We talked about them last week out in the wilderness complaining about everything. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough to drink. We don't have anything to entertain us. It's a horrible place to be. And he's heading into the same the same desert, the same wilderness. And he's headed for the same place, for Horeb, the Mount of God. He suddenly realizes his life whether he was successful killing the false prophets, whether he was honored for that, no matter what, what he was doing was the work of God. I'm going to explore that. I'm going to see what that means in my mind. And when we speak about a journey with a purpose, we usually think of a certain thing. You know, I'm going to finish writing my book by the end of the year, or I'm going to have the house painted by the end of August. No. Having a journey, having a purpose is here, a continuing process in which we're continually discovering what it means to follow God, what it means to be on our way to meet God at Horeb. Max Ehrman, in his 1927 prose poem, Desiderata, wrote, You are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. As I said in the prayer, as Jesse said, we're a part of that bigger process. And once we realize that, that becomes our purpose. And that wherever we are, we're doing something in the name of God, no matter how small and trivial it may seem to be. Uh, The Hebrew word for repent which we use all the time in the Bible, is actually a very simple word, and it's a word that was used every day by the Hebrew people. It's shuv, which simply means to settle or to return. That's what repent means. You settle or you return. So when you repent something, you come from where you've been, which is a pretty stupid place to be, and you come back to God. You come back from exile into your own home country, and you shuv, you settle it. What we're called to do is to repent constantly, which simply means we go back to where we should be, the kind of people we should be, the space we should be filling in this world as people of love and hope and justice. We go back to that place and settle it every day anew. What do I have to do today? Well, today I have to do things that will show who I am as a follower of Christ, who I am as a person who helps, a person who thinks, a person who reconciles, a person who makes things new. And how do we do this? We do it by the most simple of actions. In fact, the blogger Mark Manson has said, if you lack the motivation to make an important change in your life, do something, anything really, and then harness the reaction to that action as a way of being motivated. In other words, what we're called upon to do is to get up from where we are. I was going to sit down at this point. Bad symbolism. Get up. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, You get up at this point and, and you do something. The other day I actually was. I was sitting on the couch. And I was very happy on the couch. I had my iPad. I had a cup of coffee. And I could have sat there all day because I was very happy on the couch. And then I said, well, no, I've got to get up. I've got to do something. Well, I don't really want to do anything. No, do something. So that's what you do. God has called us to g- repent, to move somewhere, to go back to where we should be. And at that point, I, in the kitchen, I saw a piece of paper on the floor, which had been there for probably six or eight years now, but nobody... You know. 
I mean, I'm not going to see it. No, somebody else can see that. So I got up out of my chair, put down my iPad, and walked over. I picked up the sheet of paper and put it on the counter where it will lie for the next six months. But that's fine. It was there. But see, that was the beginning of action. And when I got that, I said, well, I might as well go. I'll finish up the lunch dishes, and then I can do this. And gradually, you see, that's what Manson meant by the energy building in us. Now I can do something that's worthwhile. I promised that I would make that call this afternoon. Let's make the call. I promised I'd go out and get this. Let's go out and get this. And suddenly we find that this purpose of our life falls into place. We don't plan it. Never try to plan your days completely because you're going to fail totally. But rather, you go and you do what you can do when you can do it. And you realize that you're being called into life. One small action at a time. And it's, it's a wonderful feeling. It's what, it's what life is about. And that's really what the story this morning is about. Elijah, as I said, was depressed. He'd been a complete failure. He had no place to go, nothing really to do. Uh, I tried something for God, and that didn't work out, so that's it. God said, all right, take care of yourself. Calm down. Lie down. Take some time. And then, in a new mood, in a new spirit, in a new sense of God's presence, look around you and see something to do. You're going to go down today, and you're going to meet someone you haven't talked to here before. That's easy for me. I <laughs> yeah, a lot of people. And, and then, then you'll do something else. And you'll say, wow, this is my day. This is my purpose being worked out in the world with the help of God. And the more we do it, the bigger the jobs become and the more wondrous life seems. The broom tree is there. We need moments when we are relaxed and calm. But only so we can be fed and get up and move out again on our journey, making ourselves who we are children of God. And for this, let us give thanks.